So take your Bibles, Victory Family Church, turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me this morning, if you will. And uh, we're going to go on further in our study in the book of Philippians. We are entitling this study through the summer called Joyride. We're discovering out of the book of Philippians that uh, Paul writes extensively with a joyful heart to the believers in the city of Philippi. More than 14 times he references joy, rejoice, or rejoicing. And all of this, Paul talks about his own joy, and in all of this, he is actually, when he writes this letter, uh, a prisoner uh, in Rome. He is uh, under house arrest. He is chained to a Roman guard for, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, yet he writes about joy. Because you see, Paul understood the difference between happiness and joy. We've discovered in this series that happiness is based on my circumstances. If things are good, I'm happy. If things are bad, I'm not so happy. But joy is something that is consistent because here's how we are defining biblical spiritual joy. Joy is a God-given sense of satisfaction regardless of my circumstances. No matter what is happening around me because God is consistent within me, I have joy. Now in these particular times that we find ourselves living in, here I am right now quarantined uh, at home, uh, not able to be with you in live worship today. Things are just weird. Things are challenging to us. We're being pressured on many, many sides. And, and it's a strength that comes from the joy. As it says in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. We want to persevere. We want to press through. We want to come out the other side of all of this madness on top and victorious. We need joy. So I think it's very timely that God takes us through now the book of Philippians. So we are in Philippians chapter 2, and uh, last week we were in the first four verses, and we discovered Paul there talking to the church about unity and the importance of unity. Again, how relevant is that for us in this moment? You see, there's great power we discovered last week in unity. God works amazing things with anointing and creates an atmosphere of, of his anointing and power uh, where there's unity and brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. And yet it would be imperative then that the enemy of God, Satan, would seek to destroy the unity of the church and create divisiveness in, in, in this hour and in this time. And so very relevant to us last Sunday was this idea, church, stay together, stay of like mind, uh, look out for the needs of each other, put others before yourself, walk, Paul says, humbly with each other. So now we move into verse 5 through 11 this morning. I think you're going to find and recall it's a very familiar passage to most of us, but it is probably, in my estimation, the uh, most profound verses in the Bible. You see, what we have here is basically the entire summation of who Jesus is, what he came to do, why he came to do it, and what has happened as a result of it. And it's given to us as an example by Paul. Now, now think about this. As we go through these next seven verses this morning, consider this, that every truth that is in the Bible from Genesis through Revelation is founded upon the theology and the truths of these seven verses. Every promise that God has made through his word is founded on these principles and these truths from these seven verses. Um, the very power of the gospel 
that has the power to save uh, all who will believe is founded on these seven verses. Your very salvation experience is founded on these seven verses. In fact, the assurance that the future promises yet unfulfilled will come to pass are rooted and founded on these seven verses. So it's a powerful passage of scripture for us to grasp this morning. So we're going to look at this idea of humility from the perspective and the mind of Christ. You see, last week Paul said, look, walk humbly with each other that you may be of one mind and, and one spirit and one heart. So what does it mean to walk humbly? Well, Jesus exemplified that for us in a tremendous way, the 33 years that he was on this earth. And now Paul takes that and breaks it down for us that we may see his example, understand his example, and, and follow his example of humility. So this morning we're looking at the joy of humility. So in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 5, Paul writes and he says this now. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, some versions, of, some versions of the Bible will use the word attitude in place of mindset. But when you look up the word attitude in the original Greek language, uh, ancient Greek language, you understand that it means mindset. It means a way of thinking. Paul is saying, look, think like Jesus thought while he was on this earth. Have the mind of Christ concerning each other in your relationship to each other. So mindset and attitude are, are interlinked there. When we think like Jesus, we, we think humbly. And here's how Paul then describes it. Picking up in verse number six, he says this. But on the mind of Christ, think, put this mind on you that Christ had. And here's, here it is. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made used, let me, let me back up. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I was trying to quote it and read it at the same time, and I'm reading it from a translation that I didn't memorize it from. But Paul says there, he had the very nature of God. Think about that for just a moment. Let's break this verse down. The word nature means he had the very essence of God. Bottom line, what he's telling us is Jesus is God. He was God. He is God. He will always be God. He was not second command to God. He was God. Uh, he was equal to God in every capacity. Notice what Paul writes in the book of Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image, Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. You catch that? Jesus is the uh, physical representation of the invisible, unseeable with the naked eye, God. He is the very image, the very representation of, the very physical, tangible expression of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all of creation, for everything was created by him. Who? Paul's talking about Jesus. Was created by him. Everything in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and created for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Now we know in Genesis chapter 1, the word of God says, um, 
that God created the heavens and the earth. Paul says Jesus is God. He created all things by him and for him have they been created. Friend, can you catch that today? You have been created by Jesus for him. He knows you today. He knows where you are. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what's pushing your emotional buttons right now during the present season we're in. He created you for him and for his purposes. But it goes on and says that he is the invisible representation. He's the tangible. So uh, in, in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the one who has come from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Then verse 14 says, The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. That's incarnation. The incarnate Christ. Incarnate means in flesh. God came in flesh. That's Jesus. The physical representation of God in the invisible. He was given the name. Remember? You shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. So Jesus is fully God. And yet he's come to this earth for you and I. And shown us what it is to to walk humbly i mean in the very nature he is the god of heavens and the earth and he comes down to his own creation he humbles himself to come to this earth for his own creation in this aspect we recognize this about humility and christ's humility jesus relinquished his position and took up the posture of humility humbling himself to the Father's position. Let me say that again. Jesus has relinquished, when he came to this earth, his position as God of all heaven and universe and took up the posture of humility. He humbled himself to God the Father's position of authority. We'll talk about that a little bit further in these verses in just a moment. But Jesus is fully God. And he took on the very nature of man. Philippians 2 now, verse 7 says this. He did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But notice this, verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So this gets a little tricky now. Jesus is fully God, but he puts on a human body. And yet he maintains his deity, yet at the same time he emptied himself of all of his deity. That's almost the best way I can explain it. And I know it makes no sense to your natural understanding. It makes no sense to mine. It is one of the mysteries of the nature of God. How Jesus could be fully God and yet fully man at the same time. How he could still maintain all of his deity. He didn't stop being God when he came to this earth. He did, however, yield his deity to obedience to the Father God. He relinquished his privileges and his power and his authority by submitting himself to the authority of the Father. 
Jesus would say things like this as he was teaching his disciples. He would say that I only do what I see my father doing. That's the humility. That's the humble nature of Jesus submitting his authority to the authority of the father while he was here on earth. He would make another statement. He would say, I do that which I only speak that which the father tells me to speak. Again, he's identifying that he has yielded his own power and authority to the Father. He doesn't stop possessing it, but he's not relying on it. He's relying on that of the Father while he is here on this earth, fully God, fully man. Don't let that confuse you. Don't let that cause you a setback. Allow it to be a challenge to dive in and discover more of who Jesus is. That's why God holds a few things back from us to cause us to want to press in, to discover and to find. That's what he does with this truth. He relinquished all of his glory and all of his splendor by becoming a servant to the ones he created. Remember, he created all things by him and for him and all things belong to him. And as God, yet he humbled himself and, and he came to be a servant, a servant of you and I, his own creation. So he relinquished his privileges and power. He relinquished his glory and his splendor. In fact, in John 17, as we read his great high priestly prayer, we read part of it last week. Jesus says, Father, I pray that you restore to me the glory that I once had. He's relinquished that glory for the season to come humbly as a servant to his creation. He relinquished everything he had in the glory of heaven to serve us. Consider this, Jesus never owned anything yet. The whole earth is his, Paul told us in Colossians. Everything belongs to Jesus. And yet, while here on this earth, he owned nothing. Somebody came to him one day and said, hey, master, I'm gonna follow you. And Jesus says, well, that's cool. You're welcome to come along, but consider a few things. One of those is, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, I don't have anything I can give you in tangible return. But he didn't even own a house. He didn't even own a, own a bed. You know, when he was born, it was a borrowed stable. When he wanted to preach to the multitudes as they were pressing in on the hillside, he borrowed a boat. He didn't own a boat. When he uh, rode into town on Palm Sunday, he borrowed somebody else's donkey. When he died and was buried, he borrowed someone else's tomb. You see, Jesus owned everything, but he relinquished his control of all of it for the sake of the Father's purpose and plan. Verse eight, Paul goes on now and he says, and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself, notice this, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now let's break this one down for just a moment before we uh, get into some application. He became, as a man, obedient to death. This is the greatest demonstration of humility that we will ever see. God dying for us his own creation. And I like the way Paul says it. it. He says he became obedient to death. Notice it's not just any old death. He says it this way. 
even death on a cross. What Paul wants us to understand is that that was the most despicable, despised way that a person could die and exit this earth. He was punished for the very ones he created. So even death on a cross. But think about the word Paul says there, that he became obedient to death. All the way through to the plan of God, fulfillment would be Jesus dying on the cross. Yes, he did miracles while he was here to demonstrate that he had the power to forgive sin. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He walked on water. He preached tremendous sermons. He taught with great passion and understanding greater than the rabbis of the day had. But his sole purpose in coming was, was to obey the plan of God, and, and that plan included dying on a cross for your sin and my sin. He would say in the garden, Father, if there be any way, let this cup, let this suffering that is about to come be taken from me. If there's any other way, he understood and he knew the, the suffering that was about to come. But then he said this, but Father, not my will. I'm not asking my will to be done. I'm still asking for your will to be done. And if your will includes something else, I'm open to that. But whatever it includes, Father, I'm here for your will. I want, Father God, what you want. He became obedient. Obedience to God is you and I in complete surrender to him, saying as Jesus said, not my will, your will. God, whatever you have, that's what I want. Whether it means suffering, whether it means success in the world's eyes, no matter what it means, Father, I want what you want. That's humility before the Father. It's what Jesus expressed and exemplified for us. He endured the extreme punishment and pain because it was what the Father said had to be done to redeem us from our sin. He came completely obedient. Jesus has relinquished a lot of things, humbling himself for the plan of God. Here he has relinquished his prerogative as God to fulfill his heavenly Father's purpose and plan. That was first and foremost for Jesus. Not anything that he had, not his agenda, but the agenda of the Father. When we can get to that place, that's a place of maturity on our part and a place of true humility. When we can say, Father, I want only what you want. But you see, if we stop right there, the, the, the theology of Jesus and what he has come to do would, would seem somewhat sad until we remember that scriptures make it clear in more than one place that when we humble ourselves before God, God is faithful to lift us up. So we know that when Jesus died that suffering, painful punishment on the cross, he was buried for three days. He rose from the dead. He demonstrated for 40 days his presence, his glorious power uh, of resurrection life to over 500 people. And then in Acts 1, we read that he ascended back to the Father. 
And just a side note, let's remember he hasn't left us. He sent us in that moment now, his Holy Spirit to be with us as though he were with us. He's right there in that room with you guys right now. He's right here in my living room with, with me and with my family right now. But he ascended back to the Father. And so Paul takes us now the next three verses. Let's, let's look at this. It says, therefore, now because he became obedient to death on the cross, Paul says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. What is that name? That name is Jesus, Savior. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge, confess, declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There it is. He prayed in John 17 just before he was arrested and then uh, put through all of that suffering and death. He prayed, Father, restore to me the glory of heaven that I once had. Paul tells us here that prayer was answered. Because God has glorified Jesus Christ. Jesus is seated at his right hand right now. He is, he is fully God. He is fully powerful. He is fully anointed. He is fully in control. He possesses all of the glory and the splendor that he had in the heavens before he humbled himself and relinquished all of that for the sake of the Father's plan for you and I. He's been restored now that at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, now catch this, church. At the name of Jesus, Paul says, every knee should bow. Here's the deal. Every knee will bow. It is a given that every enemy of God will one day bow a knee and say, you know what? He truly was Christ the Lord. All who have rejected him and his lordship and his claims of deity as the son of God, his claims of redemption, who have rejected his blood and his sacrifice on the cross, every single one by the billions will bow a knee. Oh, it'll be too late. They'll bow a knee at the great white throne judgment and declare he was Christ he was Lord. He was who he said he was. He did what he said he did. And I failed to get it. I rejected it. But on the other hand, friend, he doesn't say when those knees have to bow. It's just every knee will. Every knee will bow then or we can choose to bow now when it's not too late. And we can choose now to confess he is Lord. And I, I pray this morning, whether you're live on campus in the auditorium, whether you are watching by Facebook or, or YouTube or on our website, or whether you're tuning into this podcast somewhere down the line after this day today, I pray that you will take great consideration in the truth of Jesus Christ who came to die for your sin, was buried, rose from the dead so that you can have life again, has ascended to the Father and promises that he's coming back for those who believe on him. And I would say, wherever you are in that today, bow your knee to Jesus. 
Consider then this, what is our application today? What's our application for this? There's three quick, very quick applications for you. Taking what Jesus relinquished and now discovering what we should relinquish. The first is this, if you want the joy of humility, it's going to come in relinquishing your position and your power. It's going to come when you give up the control of your life over to the control of Jesus. It's when you say, Jesus, take the wheel, and you literally mean I'm going to move over here to the passenger side, and I'm going to go where you take me. My life is yours. I surrender and submit myself to your lordship. You will be master of my life. It's when we choose to let go of the control of our lives. It's when we choose to let go of the control of people. Some of us find great pleasure in controlling people and controlling everything we can put our hands on. And, and true humility is to step back and relinquish our position of power and control over anything and to trust it into Jesus' control and power. That's where the joy of humility is. Is that where you are today? Do you need to surrender that control to Jesus? Are you walking humbly by having submitted the control of your life? Is Jesus truly on the throne of your heart today? That's, that's where you start. The second point then of that application has to do with the joy of humility and relinquishing your privileges. Relinquishing your privileges. Remember, Jesus is the creator of everything that we see, touch, feel, know, sound, hear, and things we can't even see or know in the heavenlies. And yet he relinquished all of that glory and that splendor. Why? Because God had a purpose. And Jesus says, Father, I'm here for your purpose. So there comes this place, there comes this time in, in life and in our own humility where, where we have to give up our, our rights to who we think we are. We have to give up our rights to what we think life and people owe to us. We have to give up our right to think everybody has to respect us and our opinion. We have to give up our right to think we have to always be understood and heard by others. Humility truly means having to give up my right to be appreciated and accepted by everyone. You see, here's, here's a truth that, that I was taught very early on in my, my relationship with Jesus when I first was saved. And that was that the night that I accepted Christ, I went to the cross. And as Jesus died on the cross, that night I died with Jesus. And having died with Jesus, now the Apostle Paul says, we, we have relinquished everything. We, we have died with him. We have died to ourselves at the cross I relinquished all of my rights have you do you still feel like you're constantly fighting for the right to do what you want to do to believe what you want to believe above what God wants to believe do you still fight for the right to, to have your own way and your own will friend there's no joy in that. It's a losing battle. You're constantly struggling. You're constantly fighting. You're constantly in friction and conflict. Your joy comes in humbling yourself and recognizing my rights have been nailed to the cross. 
What I have is what Jesus gives to me. And true humility and maturity comes when I'm at the place that says, if Jesus don't give it to me, I don't want it. I don't need it. And we're all in a process of getting to that place. True humility comes in relinquishing your own privileges as Jesus did. And then thirdly, following the example of Jesus and having the same mindset, the joy of humility is in relinquishing your personal pursuits to God's greater purposes. Being willing to give up your personal pursuits and your personal agenda for God's greater purposes. Jesus didn't deserve the cross, but it's what the Father knew had to happen. So he willingly chose the cross. He was obedient. At the cross, your life has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Your will has been surrendered. If Jesus truly is Lord and you've given up your privileges and rights to your own domain, then Jesus has the rights to that domain. Now everything that Jesus wants is what you're to want. It's what you're to do. And with Jesus to say, Father, not my will, but your will be done in me. Your will be done through me. Your life is now to accept the purposes of God for you. You let God lead you. You let God move you. You do what God says do you say what God says to say you you think like God says to think you 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 move and you go and you do and you act and all as God says you relinquish your own personal pursuits because God has a greater purpose and you're here for him Colossians 1 all things including you have been created by him and for him I can't tell you what God's specific purposes for your life are. Only he knows that and he's very eager to share those plans with you as you give him the opportunity, as you humble yourself before him and you give him the opportunity. But I do know there's two things scripture makes very clear. Paul makes it very clear here. There are two things that I can say are God's will and purpose for your life. One is to obey him. The greatest mark of humility is obeying God. Obedience is certainly his will for you. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey God is better than shouting and singing and dancing and running the aisles in worship. Obedience is what he prefers. Second thing I can say for sure is God's will for you is you are here redeemed by the blood of Jesus for the purpose of serving others. Serving the needs of people. We talked extensively about that last week. But you're here to obey God by serving him through serving others. Jesus came for no other purpose but to serve you and I to take our sin, to die, to nail our sin to the cross and give us the grace of God for forgiveness of sin. God calls you to obedience. He calls you to serve others. 
And then when we learn this idea of humility toward God, of humility toward others around us, when we can walk humbly and serve each other graciously within the body of Christ, Peter gives us a promise. He says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand let God move you and direct you. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. The opposite of humility is pride. And pride is me continually trying to lift myself up above God and his plans. And pride is me continually trying to lift myself up above other people to think of myself more highly of others or think of myself more highly of myself than I do others to, to pride is, is that idea that I'm better than others and my ideas are all better than others my, my ways are better than others my opinions are, are next thing to holy truth that's pride judging people based on a color of skin that's pride based, uh, judging people based on a level of education that's pride putting myself above others because of my talents and abilities and their lack thereof or my supposed thinking they have a lack of. That's pride. And Proverbs says, pride always comes before destruction. Pride is me now trying to lift myself above others, but it ultimately debases me and brings me down and destroys me. God's word says, humble yourself before God. Go ahead and kneel before God. Go ahead and kneel as a servant to others and God will lift you up. That's the joy of humility, friend. God is going to lift you. God is going to elevate you. I pray this morning that somehow in some way the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now about this idea of humility. For some of you, he's speaking it about humility to him personally, that you haven't yet humbled your hearts and given Jesus throne of your life. Today's the day. Now's the moment in time to bow the knee while you can. And for some of us, he's talking about this idea of humility toward others. Being willing to relinquish our right to always be right, to always be appreciated, to relinquishing our power and authority of who we are based on what we have compared to what someone else doesn't have. Just looking to each other and saying, I'm here for you. Paul says, let that same attitude that was in Jesus be in us, who being in the very nature of God, chose not to use that to his advantage. Let me pray for us this morning.